In the early morning hours of June 2nd, 1899, five masked men held up a Union Pacific train near Wilcox, Wyoming. In what would become one of the more famous robberies of the Old West, the bandits used dynamite to blast their way into a mail car, and after another detonation took care of the safe, they would ride away with an estimated $50,000, nearly $2 million in today's money. And if this sounds familiar, well, maybe you've seen a little film called Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Contrary to what's portrayed in the movie, there's a very good chance that Butch Cassidy himself had nothing to do with this particular holdup. Be that as it may, it's next to certain that those who did were members of his gang, the Wild Bunch. Harry Longaball, aka the Sundance Kid, was likely one of the masked men. So was the deadly Harvey Logan and his brother Lonnie, the tall Texan Ben Kilpatrick, and last, but certainly not least, was a land pirate by the name of George Flatnose Curry. As per the gang's M.O., they utilized horse relays set up along their escape route, and upon divvying up the loot, they broke up into smaller bunches, careful to watch their tail as they disappeared into the backcountry. Sadly, a sheriff out of Converse County would lose his life when he and his posse got a little too close to the Desperados, near a place that I'm sure you've heard of. A location even more famous than the Wild Bunch, in name at least, Teapot Dome. Of course, that scandal hadn't occurred just yet, and at the time, the Dome, or Teapot Rock, was just a craggy landmark in present-day Natrona County, Wyoming, which just so happens to border Johnson County. The banditti were headed for a remote pass in the Bighorn Mountains they called Hole in the Wall, sort of an outlaw stronghold they used at times as a headquarter of sorts. And the Hole in the Wall was located in Johnson County. The same Johnson County we've been discussing dang near this entire series. Now, the Wild Bunch did not exist when Frank Cannon was sheriff thereabouts. Of course, back then, the worst crime that old Butch Cassidy had ever committed was stealing that pair of jeans and a slice of pie. By the time the Wild Bunch came into being, Frank had already moved on, and when them old boys robbed that train in Wilcox, Cannon was still up in Alaska, fighting to keep his job and his eyesight. But he'd soon be returning. And after a bit of comeuppance, damn near a decade in the making, a little bit of Johnson County justice, if you will, Frank would saddle up and go on the hunt for the Wild Bunch. At least what was left of them. Got a lot to cover on this episode. An averted assassination, an epic ass-whooping, Ken's career as a bounty hunter, his return to Indian Territory, his debut on the silver screen, and finally his ascension to the highest ranks of power. Something the man had been in pursuit of one way or another, his entire life. This is the fifth and final installment in the Frank Canton series. Link in the show notes for the previous four. With that out of the way, let's just get right down to it. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. (laughs) By the time Frank Canton made his somewhat disgraced journey home from Alaska... It had been over two years since he had seen his wife and daughter. He'd travel via train all the way to Sheridan, Wyoming, where he'd then switch to a stagecoach for the last leg of his journey, some 40 miles south to Buffalo, for what I'm sure he envisioned would be an emotional reunion. Imagine his surprise when, stepping off the train in Sheridan, he spied his wife. She was expecting him, but so was everybody else, even those who wished to do Frank harm. Annie had heard the rumors and came to warn her beloved that trouble was waiting down the line, namely in the form of the vengeful 12-year-old Martin Tisdale. As such, Ken took precautions. 
Once the stage approached the outskirts of Buffalo, he disembarked and slipped in on foot, unseen. Turns out young Martin was employed on a horse ranch by a couple of Canton's old enemies, Tom Gardner and Lou Webb. And for as long as the kid could remember, this pair reminded him, damn near on a daily basis, that Frank Canton was the one who murdered his daddy. And when word drifted down that Frank was returning to Buffalo, it was Gardner and Webb who gave Martin that revolver and instructed him that the time for retribution had arrived. Luckily, Canton was able to avoid gunplay on this particular occasion, likely saving a 12-year-old's life in the process. As such, Martin would live another 53 years, passing away in 1952 at the age of 65. And with one hell of a story. So disaster averted, right? Well, unfortunately, Frank wasn't able to stay out of trouble for long. The citizens of Johnson County still hated the man, he was effectively surrounded by enemies, and it was only a matter of time before somebody made a move. A tense situation exasperated by Frank taken to the bottle. He stopped in at the Occidental Bar there in Buffalo and was already pretty deep in his cups when an old foe by the name of Will Foster made an entrance. Now, Foster was long ago blacklisted by the WSGA, and he really irked Canton when, while Frank was under military arrest, Foster rode around on the lawman's prized horse, Fred. Fun little joke at Frank's expense, right? Well, maybe not. You see, Will Foster wasn't a comical sort of man. Matter of fact, he was remembered by at least one resident of Johnson County as never seeming to laugh and always being on the alert. That even those who approached his camp at night would find him wide awake. No, I think the horse riding stunt was the pure insult that Frank obviously took it for. And he never forgot. He would initially offer to buy Foster a drink, though. A gesture that Will immediately refused, saying he would not drink with Canton. Now, I don't know much, but I've spent enough time in bars and beer joints to know that when you turn away an aggressive drunk's offer of a drink, they will invariably get fighting mad. And sure enough, Frank immediately begins talking shit. Bragged about how he had tracked Foster on two separate occasions with the intent of killing him. Will acknowledged as much, saying, You poisoned my dog, but you never got to me. To which Frank replied, No, I didn't then, but I'm going to kill you now. And then he went for his pistol. Now, more than one source I've found stated that Frank Cannon was pretty fast on the draw. Be that as it may, Will Foster was faster. At least he was on this day. He jerked his revolver before Frank cleared leather, but instead of pulling that trigger, he whacked Frank upside the head with it. So hard, in fact, that the gun went flying out of his hand. Cannon, ignoring his own holstered pistol, quickly bent down to retrieve Will's, but once again, Foster was too fast. He snatched the gun off of the saloon floor before Frank could get to it and then commenced to beat the absolute brakes off of Frank Canton. Over and over, Will Foster smashed that six-shooter down onto Canton's head. So many times and with such rage that witnesses felt like he was killing the ex-lawman. He didn't, but by the time this lesson in manners was over, Frank would need over 60 stitches. They say sometime after, once Canton was recuperated enough that he could walk on his own accord, he and Foster had themselves another rendezvous of sorts. Frank noticed Will walking across the street, so he stepped outside and onto the Buffalo thoroughfare to meet him. As the nervous town folks watched, Foster continued approaching, headed straight for Frank, not slowing or altering his gait one bit as Canton stood there waiting, eyes fixed. And then Will Foster just walked right on past Canton. The two men were within touching distance, but Foster didn't so much as turn his head, alter his pace nothing. It was as if Frank did not exist. 
Canton stood there a bit dumbfounded, watching Foster walk away before returning back inside, and that was that. Now, I don't know precisely when this beatdown occurred, but Frank arrived in Buffalo in October of 1899, four months after that Wilcox train robbery, and he wouldn't begin his manhunt until January of 1900. Other than convalescing, Canton used this time to correspond both with the Pinkertons and the Union Pacific, hoping to get one of the two to fund his expedition in search of the Wild Bunch. They declined, so Frank turned to his older brother down in Texas, John Wesley Horner. Now, at this time, each one of those responsible for the train robbery had a $3,000 bounty on their head, dead or alive, which is over 100000 in today's money. That said, by the time Frank started looking, the only remaining member of the Wild Bunch still in the area was flat-nosed George Curry, so it is he that Canton would focus on. Both Frank and John Wesley set off in pursuit, chasing leads all over northern Wyoming and Montana before finally calling it quits in April, when news spread of Curry being killed down in Utah. Another failed venture. Keep in mind that this entire time, the only source of income for the Canton family was Frank's wife Annie. She was running a little diner there in Buffalo and had been ever since Frank was in Alaska. And she and young Ruby were doing great, socially at least. They were fully accepted in town, well-liked despite their association with Canton. It was just Frank that the people could not stand. And considering what went down during the Johnson County War, you can't really blame them. By the way, Frank would once more be accused of murder there in Johnson County. Back during the hostilities, there was an old boy known as Arapaho Brown, on account that he liked to run around with Arapaho gals, who was a leader among the so-called rustlers. He was one of the top guys in charge of the siege against the invaders before the army came in and put an end to all the fun. Well, on January 22nd, 1901, someone went and murdered Mr. Brown, killed him and then threw his body on the woodpile before torching it. Suspicion immediately fell on Canton, but he had a stone-cold alibi. Not only was he not in Wyoming on that date, but Arapaho's killers were ultimately apprehended and, following a confession, sentenced to life in prison. So where was Frank in late January of 01? Hunting vampires, that's where. He was killing vampires when and where he could find them. Little vampires, big vampires, blind vampires, albino vampires. Frank didn't give a fuck. If you were a vampire, he would find you and he would kill you. No. Uh, sorry, another inside joke from the, uh, first couple installments in this series. No, Frank was back in Oklahoma, desperately trying to get his name cleared so he could once again pin on the badge of a deputy U.S. Marshal. Law enforcement was in Canton's blood at this point. It's what he had been doing in some fashion for the past 20 years. It's all he knew, so I reckon it's only natural that he would continue to pursue this line of work. But despite even going so far as contacting the U.S. Attorney General under President Roosevelt, Frank was out of luck as far as the Federal Commission was concerned. He instead settled temporarily for a job as a deputy under the new sheriff of Pawnee County, John Crimson, at least until the land lottery of 1901 and the creation of Comanche County. One of Frank's old buddies, Bill Painter, was elected sheriff of the new county over there in southwestern Oklahoma, and Ken went to work for him as a deputy. Now, the county seat in Comanche was and is Lawton a boomtown of sorts whose population exploded to over 10,000 in just one week. Not a mining town like in the old days, this boom was over land, but still you had your usual types, you know, the gamblers and con men and whores and all that. It may have been the year of our Lord, 1901, but things were still a little wild in Lawton, Oklahoma. Hell, their courthouse when Frank arrived was just a covered wagon in the town square. This also doubled as the jail with them chaining prisoners to the wagon wheels. 
Story goes that one rather large prisoner simply walked off, only to be recaptured sometime later, miles away, still carrying a heavy wheel. Interestingly enough, Canton's old foe from the Doolin gang days, Heck Thomas, was one of his co-workers during this period, serving not only as a fellow Comanche County deputy, but also chief of police for Lawton and deputy U.S. Marshal. One can only assume that Frank was jealous, but there's no record of any sort of altercations. Truth be told, where Sheriff Painter and many of his deputies were accused of shaking down prisoners for money, Canton was specifically singled out as being one of the few honest ones. Of course, that didn't stop him from doing a bit of election tampering. He would use his friendship with Burke Burnett to get a meeting with Comanche leader Quanta Parker and coerce him to keep his people from voting in a certain upcoming election. He also, during the same election, posted himself outside of a voting location in Cash, Oklahoma, and proclaimed that every black man who attempted to cast a ballot would be put in irons. And this is really where me and Frank Cannon just don't see eye to eye. Blatant racial discrimination aside, I mean, I guess that was to be expected in those days, it's just the abuse of power that stands out to me. This wasn't the first time, and it certainly would not be the last. We'll talk more about it coming up, but Frank never hesitated to use his badge for his own purposes. In June of 1903, Frank would be hired as a stock inspector for the Cattle Raisers Association of Texas, thanks in large part to the aforementioned old friend, Burke Burnett. His AO would be the Osage Nation, meaning he'd be working back in the Pawnee area. And the work he was doing was a lot like what he did as an inspector back in Wyoming. His job was to investigate, apprehend, and help convict cattle thieves. And that's exactly what he did. Members of the Texas Cattle Raisers Association have reason to feel proud of Frank Canton, wrote the Pawnee Times Democrat after Frank broke up a cattle theft ring led by outlaw Tom Jordan. Success notwithstanding, Frank still had his mind set on a federal job. He cozied up to the new Oklahoma governor, former Rough Rider Frank France, say that three times fast, and even had Burke Burnett put the worm in Teddy Roosevelt's ear as far as him getting a commission. Hell, Cannon was even able to get the attorney that previously helped prosecute him, T.A. Taylor, to say that he harbored no ill will and that Cannon may have quote-unquote reformed. In the end, Oklahoma Marshal Jack Abernathy would swear Frank in as a deputy U.S. Marshal once more in late 1906, a position that some think was granted for the sole purpose of having Canton track down the assassin Jim Miller, also known as Deacon Jim Miller. This would not happen as word quickly came down from the Attorney General's office all the way in D.C. that no, Frank Canton could not be a daggum federal deputy, and that was that. The end. Stop asking. Still, though, Frank did not allow himself to get too discouraged, and once more, politics would play a large role in his life, this time in a positive manner. Oklahoma would officially join the Union in 1907, becoming the 46th state, and this meant there would be an elected governor as opposed to the one presidentially appointed. One of the men running was Democrat Charles N. Haskell. And as fate would have it, Haskell's campaign manager was the son of the feller that Frank worked for back when he was an unofficial orderly for the Army in 1865. This was Frank's ticket to the big leagues, and it weren't long before he not only ingratiates himself to the campaign, but also became Charles Haskell's self-appointed bodyguard. Haskell would go on to win the election, and in his official capacity as governor, surprised everybody, Frank included, by appointing Canton to the office of Oklahoma's adjutant general. Now, if you're not familiar with this title, the easiest way I can explain is that the adjutant general is the top military commander over a particular state's National Guard. 
In Oklahoma, they are appointed by the governor and serve at the governor's pleasure with no set term limits. But I'll let Frank explain. In his own words, quote, The adjutant general was recognized by the War Department as head of the military department of the state with the rank of brigadier general and subservient to the governor only. Of course, the governor was commander-in-chief, but his duties as chief executive were so numerous that he had no time to give to the military department. The adjutant general was also president of the examining board for the commission and promotion of all officers and was held responsible by the War Department and by the governor of the state for the efficiency of the entire military department of the state. Under military law, the adjutant general was also ex officio quartermaster general, paymaster general, surgeon general, and chief of ordinance, end quote. Normally, uh, at least nowadays, this is a position held by top military commanders. Case in point, the current adjutant general of Oklahoma is Brigadier General Thomas Mancino. Dude's been in uniform for over three decades and has three combat deployments under his belt. Here in my home state of Texas, the adjutant general is a major general, Thomas Sulzer. Just like General Mancino, Sulzer has decades of experience. First with the Air Force and then with the Texas Air National Guard. You get the picture, right? And then you got General Frank Canton, a man who had never served one solitary day in uniform. At least not until he received his adjutant general's uniform. Prior to this, the most Canton had ever commanded was a posse of deputies. And as one writer put it, Frank's past military experience was limited to shooting soldiers down in Jacksboro, Texas. Nonetheless, credit where credit's due, Frank did certainly look the part. I haven't really covered Canton's physical description as of yet during this series, but he was not a large man. Per his prison records, Frank was 5'11 and just 138 pounds. At least he was back in 1877. And judging by pictures, he was about the same weight in 1907. Not an ounce of visible fat on the man, fit his uniform like he was born to it, had a perfectly trimmed mustache and set ramrod straight in the saddle. If you didn't know any better, by looking at him, you would think he was a lifer. One newspaper out of Guthrie, Oklahoma, described Ken at this time as about six feet tall, slender, and made mostly of sand. Lack of military experience notwithstanding, Frank proved to be more than competent as far as whipping the Oklahoma National Guard into shape was concerned. Before his appointment, they did not meet the minimum standards of efficiency as outlined by the War Department. Thus, they were not eligible to receive federal funds or equipment. And hell, during this period, all the Oklahoma Guard consisted of was a skeleton crew of an infantry regiment consisting of just 600 men. Frank would almost double this number and make sure that they had the support of a hospital and signal corps, ordered twice monthly drills in addition to an annual 10-day muster. He also petitioned for a law that penalized employers who refused to allow a guardsman to attend training. By the way, I'll never not get a kick out of the fact that we changed the name of the War Department to the Department of Defense. Anyway, taking a page from his formative years in Texas, Canton also tried to form a sort of Oklahoma version of the Texas Rangers, a state police department answering only to him as the adjutant general. This was ultimately voted down, but as you'll see, this would not stop Frank's future boss from using the guard as such. It also won't prevent me from taking a moment to hear from this episode's sponsor. All right then, welcome back. In 1908, Canton took the Oklahoma Guards rifle team to Camp Perry, Ohio, for the national sharpshooting competition. Not sure how they did, but their commander, General Canton, won first place in the pistol match. 
hitting bullseye with every shot at 25 yards and doing so well at the 50 and 75 yard targets that he figuratively blew his competition away. It was in that same year that Frank committed what the amazingly talented artist and Western film aficionado David Lambert considers to be his greatest crime. He starred in Al Jennings' silent film The Bank Robbery, alongside a hated foes Bill Tillman and Heck Thomas. Also featured in the movie, other than Jennings, was Quanah Parker. Now, I do think this movie is kind of cool, if for no other reason than you get to see Quanah Parker in motion, riding a horse. Horrible quality, of course. I mean, shit, it's from 1908, but it is on YouTube if you're interested. Link down in the show notes. I think Quanah comes in at the 21-minute mark. The following year, Frank got the chance to test the guards' metal in a real-world conflict when they were called to put an end to the Crazy Snake Rebellion, a.k.a. the Smoked Meat Rebellion, which sounds delicious. Not really going to go into this particular fracas here on this episode, as I do plan on covering it in more detail in the future. But sure enough, the Oklahoma Guard was sent in, initially without Canton say-so, a sore spot we'll touch on in just a moment, and they did restore order. So, so far, so good, right? Frank Canton finally had a position of high authority, a fancy title, and he seemed to be thriving in the position. Unfortunately, he still enjoyed a drink on occasion, and you know how Frank got when he took to the bottle. One spree in particular damn near cost the man his job. Okay, so, the Oklahoma Guard had themselves a band, and oftentimes they would play for various functions, many of them non-military in fashion, and oftentimes in uniform. Nobody minded as this not only gave them a little bit of free PR, but also a chance to earn some money on the side. Cool. But when the band performed at an event for one of Canton's political enemies, Oklahoma Republican Bird McGuire, Frank, more than a little under the influence, decided that he would no longer allow his musicians to play for political functions. The band leader ignored this order, and they went ahead and performed anyway, just out of uniform and on borrowed instruments. Governor Haskell, Frank's boss, became aware of this drama and once again going over Canton's head, sent word to Congressman McGuire saying that he was happy to have the band play and furthermore, they should do so in uniform. And once Frank Canton got wind of this, he flew into a drunken rage, storming into the Royal Hotel where Governor Haskell was staying and confronting the man publicly. You cannot counterman my orders and by God, sir, if you do, you will pay for it. Frank hollered before he, per an eyewitness, quote, proceeded to tell Haskell some truths that his ear had long deserved, told them too in language much more forcible than eloquent, end quote. And if that's not enough, as the owner of the hotel and a few bystanders rushed in to separate the two guys, one of them pulled a loaded revolver out of Frank's pocket. Not a big deal, as he usually went armed. But the rumor mill picked up on this, and word soon spread that not only did Canton drunkenly threaten the governor, but he also pulled a gun on him. Which he didn't, but you know how gossip be. Believe it or not, by the time the two would meet again, later on the following day, their tempers had cooled and they kissed and made up. Frank Wood put in a letter of resignation expecting to be fired, but the governor did not accept it. His term as Oklahoma's commander-in-chief was soon coming to an end, and he wasn't planning on running for re-election. So he figured he'd go ahead and let Frank serve out the remainder of his time as adjutant general, thinking that with the new governor would come a replacement for Canton as well. This would not be the case. There was a new governor, Lee Cruz, but when he took office in January of 1911, he chose to keep Frank on. And boy, oh boy, what a team they made. The sanctimonious Kentucky-born Cruz, an attorney and banker before getting involved in politics, was a very strong proponent of both blue laws and prohibition. 
Blue laws, by the way, are laws banning or restricting certain activities on specified days, usually Sundays here in the United States. They still exist, just to a much smaller scale. Take present-day Oklahoma, for example, where car dealerships are closed on Sundays, because you oughtn't be out there buying a car on the Lord's Day. That's a blue law. You also can't buy liquor on Sundays. That's another blue law. I guess it's okay to get drunker than Cooter Brown the other six days of the week, but you better either stock up on the night before or go sober come church time. And if I'm not mistaken, there are still states to this very day that have blue laws against hunting and fishing on the Sabbath. You know, I don't talk much about my own personal politics on this podcast. Truth is, I don't align with any political party. My own personal philosophy can best be summed up with the phrase, I just want to be left alone. I know laws are important and you must have rules in a civilized society. I'm all for it. But I also believe in a truly free society, I should be allowed to do whatever I want so long as I'm not hurting somebody else. And yeah, that includes buying a car, getting drunk, or shooting a whitetail on a Sunday. Not Governor Cruz, though. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that he for sure would not be a fan of the Wild West extravaganza. What's more, he would use Frank Canton and the State Guard to enforce and maintain these self-righteous statutes. No drinking, no gambling, no horse racing, no prize fighting, and by God, no breaking of the Sabbath. All this was to be strictly adhered to under Cruz, and when he barked, Canton and the Oklahoma Guard would bite. Like on the four separate occasions when Frank and his troops were called in to stop prize fights. Hell, they even put a stop to a damn roping competition in October of 1914. Pretty much anything that was fun was a big no-no. So much so that shots were even fired that same year when the citizens of Tulsa, Oklahoma, attempted to sinfully engage in some unsanctioned horse racing. General Canton and the guard arrived locked and loaded, but one of the race promoters obtained an order issued by an Oklahoma Superior Court judge giving permission for the race to continue. Canton outright ignored this, stating that he pays no attention to such orders and answers only to Governor Cruz. And despite Canton's men clearing the stands of spectators, the promoters still went ahead with the race, or at least they tried to. When the first horses broke out of the gates, Frank had the guard fire a volley over the heads of the jockeys, threatening that if anybody else came out, he would order his men to shoot to kill. Listen, God doesn't want you to gamble on horses, alright? It's bad for you. So's drinking. Also, bass fishing on Sundays is completely out of the question. Look, man, we're just trying to protect you from yourself. And if we've got to fucking murder some of you motherfuckers to save you from eternal damnation, well, so be it. For what it's worth, Governor Cruz would narrowly avoid impeachment and not seek a second term. His replacement, the much more laid-back Governor Robert Lee Williams, would also keep Frank on as an adjutant general. Or he would until Congress enacted the National Defense Act of 1916 following Pancho Villa's raid on Columbus, New Mexico. This bill gave greater federal control over National Guard units and Canton, being a bit of an anachronism at this point with zero regular army experience, no longer fit the bill as commander. As such, Frank was promoted to Major General and then asked for his resignation. Just 19 days later, the Guard would be sent to Texas on his first operation as a unit of the U.S. Army without their former commander. Frank and his wife Annie then moved to Oklahoma and lived with their daughter Ruby. She had remained unmarried and, after studying music in Chicago, had gone on to become a college librarian. And as nice as it was for her to take care of her parents, Frank still needed a job. After a short, failed venture into the oil industry, Frank would go back to work for the Cattle Raisers Association of Texas and was even made an honorary member for life. 
an ironic turn of events considering that he himself was once a blatant rustler of Texas cattle. Now, at this point in his life, Frank was no longer going out in the field and hunting down thieves. His work for the association was more in the support of those who were. He would also begin writing his memoirs by hand. And despite claiming that he wanted to forget the past and not seek any sort of limelight, he would fish around for both a ghostwriter to assist him and a publisher, with hopes of maybe turning his life story into a movie. And why not? I mean, hell, everybody else was doing it. Regrettably, this would not work out, at least not in Frank's lifetime. By 1925, he began deteriorating rather quickly. He was nearly deaf and blind and had already been forced to retire from the Cattle Raisers Association. He and Annie did still live with Ruby, surviving off of Frank's small pension, and in early September of 1927, he would be diagnosed with cancer. Of what type, I don't know. The family would quietly celebrate Frank's 78th birthday on September 15th, and then just 12 days later, on the 27th, he would pass away. Canton's body was taken to Oklahoma City, where he laid in state, before being buried with full Masonic and military rites. 21 gun salute and all. Per one newspaper editor, quote, The man who died at Edmund Tuesday was literally born to the role he filled with such success. Canton knew exactly what to do and exactly how to do it. He thought straight, he saw straight, and hence he was able to shoot straight. He was able to think straight because he knew nothing of the distracting influences of fear. Probably he died without ever knowing what fear really was. His nerves were as quiet as the finest tempered steel, and for that reason he could think of nothing but his target, see it clearly, and shoot directly into its heart. The states that spread their acres from the Mississippi out towards the sunset owe a mighty debt to Frank Canton and his kind. End quote. A beautiful eulogy, without a doubt. And I tend to agree that Frank rarely knew the meaning of the word fear. However, not everybody remembered him so fondly. Frank's memoirs would eventually get printed. Uh, sadly, a year after Frank's death, his daughter Ruby would also pass at just 42 years of age, leaving poor Annie alone. To busy herself, and I'm sure keep her mind off of her grief, she labored over Frank's manuscripts eventually getting it published in 1930 under the title of Frontier Trails, the autobiography of Frank Canton. At the time, there was no mention of Frank's outlaw past, nor any indication that his true name was Joe Horner. Even now, this is only mentioned in the foreword. And yeah, I will leave a link in the show notes in case you'd like to check it out. Per author Frank D'Arment, one such copy ended up in the public library up there in Buffalo, Wyoming, where Frank wasn't so warmly remembered. D'Arment writes, quote, a reader inserted his own critique in penciled marginal notes in the volume. Passages are underlined with terse comments. Not true. Lies. False. In block capital letters is the accusation. Liar, thief, and murderer. Cannon had closed his chapter on the Johnson County Cattle War by commenting that he was broken financially by the affair. The anonymous critic responded, Too bad he didn't hang. A terse summation is made on the end sheet. This book is a pack of lies. I hope very few people ever read it. I'm sorry I did. End quote. And there you go, man. That's Frank Ken in a nutshell. In a lot of ways, the very manifestation of the Old West itself. One big, complicated, messy legend. And since I'm already quoting from Frank D.R. Mint, and since he's a much more eloquent man than I... Let's go ahead and close this out with the author's final paragraph in the book Alias Frank Canton. Mint writes, And so, in memory as in life, Joe Horner, alias Frank Canton, a hard man in a hard time, 
remains one of the most controversial figures of the turbulent frontier era. Like the milieu that produced him, his life was complex, often contradictory, but forever fascinating. In damn quote, and I 100% agree. Frank was tough and he was fearless. The man could shoot straight, endure harsh conditions, and was doggedly determined on the trail. And he stood up for what he believed in. Unfortunately, what he believed in often put him on the wrong side of history, and he had no qualms in abusing his authority. Frank was a criminal as a younger man. This is an irrefutable fact. He was a thief. He stole cows and horses all over North Texas. He helped rob a bank, and he held up a stagecoach. All this with the business end of a loaded gun. He escaped from jail many a time, only to then turn around and relentlessly pursue others, sometimes lethally, who were guilty of far less severe crimes than he. And had the invasion of Johnson County been successful, there's no telling how many others would have died. That said, I don't think Canton was evil. I think he, like all the other so-called heroes of the Old West, was just a flawed, complicated human being. People who knew him in his latter years viewed Frank as the old guard. You know, just one of them unshakable, infallible, brave men of integrity. But those who knew him during the Johnson County War considered him a rank murderer, an assassin. I mean, we still don't know if it was he who killed Tisdale and Orley Jones. And viewed through a modern lens, I'm sure many revisionists would probably try to sum up Frank's life as that of just an oppressive racist. Yet at the same time, he was a devoted family man. Despite his job often causing him to spend long stretches of time away from his loved ones, I found no indication that Frank ran around on Annie or in any way neglected his daughter Ruby. And he did arrest many, many legitimate criminals, making the frontier a tad bit safer with each conviction. At the end of the day, I don't necessarily think Frank Canton was a good guy. I just don't think he was any worse than other legends that many now look up to. Guys like Wyatt Earp or even Jesse James are lauded as heroes, whereas Frank Canton, a man who in many ways embodied the Old West, is relegated to a damn near obscurity. So what do you think? Was Frank Canton a villain? A hero? Or just like me and you, somewhere in between? Was he really a vampire? Did he ever arrest any lichens? Was the entire Johnson County War just a cover-up for interdimensional creatures vying for control of the underworld? Hit me up and let me know what you think. Josh at WildWestExtra.com or head on over to WildWestExtra.com and hit that contact button. All right, and with that, I reckon that's about all I've got on Frank Canton. As for what the future holds in regard to the Wild West extravaganza, here's what we got coming up. Not too long ago, I asked for topic suggestions. Not because I'm running out of stuff to talk about, but because I want to keep you interested. I mean, yeah, I do do this podcast for my own enjoyment, but part of that enjoyment comes from giving you, the listener, what you want. Daddy likes to please. And the most suggested topic during this round was by far the Fur Trapper or Mountain Man era. With that said, I'm happy to announce that our next topic will be the great Jim Bridger. Somebody I've wanted to cover ever since the very beginning. Not gonna lie, I've always kind of put it off because I knew it would be a super long episode. But now that we're doing more of a series format, it won't be too bad and I'll be able to go even deeper into Bridger's life. Fur trapper, trader, warrior, peacemaker, troubadour, scout, a real mountain man's mountain man. We're going to take a look at Bridger's early life, his apprenticeship to a legendary gunsmith, and his first travels west, his possible connection with Hugh Glass of the Revenant fame, that time he got an arrow dug out of his back by a missionary, his feud with the Mormons, him possibly being the cause of the Donner Party catastrophe, and his later career scouting for the army as an old man in his 60s. 
No offense to those of you in your 60s. I'm really, really excited for this, so I hope you stick around for it. Just one caveat, though. You're going to have to wait. I enjoyed releasing this Frank Canton series like I did, one episode every week. And that will continue with Jim Bridger. But partly because I don't do enough for my patrons, I also want the entire thing available for them to binge all at once or at their leisure as soon as it's available. And this will be the precedent going forward. So I need to finish the research and writing aspect, record it, edit the entire series, so that I can then release it in its entirety on Patreon, ad-free. At that point, I will also begin releasing it here to the general public on a weekly basis. I don't have a hard date set in stone yet, but I'm tentatively uh, looking at maybe February 4th. Not going to just leave you high and dry, though. Got a couple of shorter episodes coming up, one of which will be a collaboration with the aforementioned artist, David Lambert. Interestingly enough, both of these shorter episodes will involve the late, great Wyatt Earp. Matter of fact, there might actually even be a third little Wyatt-adjacent episode. Got a lot of ideas rattling around in this feeble little head of mine. You will hear from me once more before we ring in the new year, probably next Wednesday. And in January, I'm hoping to have a few guests drop by. And who knows, maybe I'll toss in a few re-recordings. Holy shit, am I about to be a busy beaver. It's got that weird feeling in my gut that you get when you're not really sure you can deliver. But I will endeavor to persevere. Once more, I would like to mention the two books I leaned on as my main sources of info during this series. Alias Frank Canton by Robert K. Diarment and The Johnson County War by Bill O'Neill. As always, there's only so much I can cover, even with the series, so I would recommend getting both of these books if you're interested in a deep dive into Frank Canton and or The Johnson County War. Also, my apologies, but I did try to focus mostly on Canton during this series. In all fairness, The Johnson County War itself could have taken up to four or five episodes all on its own. A lot of stuff I didn't cover, and a lot of it is extremely interesting. I'll actually be sending out a new edition of the Wild West Extravaganza newsletter soon, highlighting a certain player in the Johnson County Ward that we didn't even touch on in this series. You can get that newsletter 100% free, by the way, by going to wildwestjosh.substack.com or clicking on the link in the show notes. All right, thank you so much for listening. Big shout out to everybody on Patreon. Huge thanks to those of you who help support the Wild West Extravaganza via Buy Me a Coffee. And a big thank you to Michael over at Texas History Lessons for just putting out good work and continuing to be an inspiration. Till next time, try not to tamper in any elections or pass any blue laws. And if you absolutely must get drunk, buy a car, and yell at the governor on a Sunday, take the damn bullets out of your gun first. Adios. Daddy likes to please.